I guess there is something related to the women, which is an experience and knowledge, but we pass it down maybe irrationally, you know, like without bringing to a pure rationalization. Again, maybe it's not right because then it is dissolved and we never know who are these women, but they speak like in a collective voice, an anonymous voice. So it's not like uh, creating a figures in the history, like prophets that we venerate, but we rather venerate a collective presence or a collective human knowledge. So with women, is that the sense of being invisible, intraceable, but the transmitter. This is AI Murmurings, a podcast exploring intersections of contemporary art and artificial intelligence. I'm Carolyn Strauss, director of Slow Research Lab, a multidisciplinary research and curatorial platform based in the Netherlands. Conversations here focus on slow approaches to creative practice that we believe can awaken latent potentials for AI that are murmuring just under the surface. This new season of the podcast is made possible by a grant from the Resonance Foundation, a philanthropic organization in Southern California that seeks to advance, communicate, and encourage new perspectives through the creative process. Learn more at theresonancefoundation.org. Today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Saudat Ismailova, a filmmaker, artist, and mythopoetic storyteller from a country known in the present day as Uzbekistan. Her vivid and strikingly beautiful work paints a multi-layered, multi-dimensional tableau of the pasts, presents, and possible futures of Central Asia. She currently lives in Paris, which is where she joins me from today. Saudat Ismailova, thank you for joining me in conversation. It's really an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much, Caroline, for inviting uh, to this conversation. Very much looking forward. So you are known primarily as a filmmaker, and that's in a very holistic sense, as you are simultaneously a, a screenwriter, a director, editor, cinematographer. But also you make sculpture, you make collage installations, performance that revolve around that filmmaking work. I heard that you don't always feel comfortable with the title of the artist, but your work has been shown twice at the Venice Biennale, including in this last edition, The Milk of Dreams, curated by Cecilia Almani. Um, last year, you were also a featured artist at Documenta 15 in Kassel, practicing Lumbung together with a collective that you brought together, the Davra Collective, a group of post-Soviet Central Asian artists, and not least for those like me who are lucky enough to be in the Netherlands, your retrospective exhibition, 18,000 Worlds, is currently on view at the Eye Film Museum in Amsterdam through the 4th of June. Is there anything you'd like to add about you, about your practice, about where you come from? Well, 
I think that to be entitled as artist, probably uh, I got more confident about it exactly in 2022 uh, as my work was uh, invited to uh, Biennale and Documenta, but I was educated as a filmmaker. Uh, it's mm. a Russian film school in Uzbekistan, which is built on a Soviet language of cinema. So it took a bit of time, you know, uh, how fluid it can be. And uh, in fact, you can use all the possible tools to tell your story and you do what you can do, you know, it uh, it depends on, for example, you mentioned all this uh, work like editing, sometimes sound editing, you know, that mm. I'm not trained for. But you do it uh, as, because you want to to make your work happen. But speaking about Uzbekistan, as you mentioned, it's in Central Asia. And um, I think there is still so much work to be done uh, mm. in Central Asia in general. Um, what do you mean by that work to be done in what way? Well, I think that we are still in transition as well, you know, like even though Soviet Union has collapsed 30 years ago, the education system is still continues what was established by the Soviet era. So, for example, mm -hmm. for the art students, they need a bit of, I guess, a, a reform or some update in the education system mm -hmm. that would help, of course, for the development of film scene, art scene. So there is more young voices that come from the region. Mm. Which I guess is what you were doing with the Davra Collective in bringing them together and offering them a space to share their art, to express, to collectively create in Kassel during this very special documenta that happened last year. It's exactly that. With Davra, it's not about uh, like educating, but it's rather about sharing experience. Yeah sharing uh, a knowledge there is a practical knowledge there is also a knowledge related to how you shape your works so it's more a ground of exchange davra mm. and it's a very open collective you know so we keep it open for everyone in the region and i'm very happy about it that a documenta was kind of a, a push yeah uh, and now it's leaving davra mm. yeah <laughs> fantastic I'm so excited to give our listeners an opportunity to learn about the unique lens of your practice, the territories of knowledge that you just began to hint at, the ways of knowing and getting to know um, that are expressed through your works. And I'm looking forward in whatever loose way to speculate together about what this all might offer to the theater of operations, as it were, of artificial intelligence and machine learning. This podcast being my slow attempt to build an alternative vocabulary and a set of values and possible potentials of the emerging technologies that can open up new spaces of consciousness, can make visible worlds that have been in the background, have been under the surface, or even until now simply have not been accessible to humans, certainly not to human intellect within dominant Western epistemologies, you know, and that also brings me to your work and why it interests me so much to speak with you here, because it does present a distinctly non-Western gaze and perspective, but also the way your work is blurring lines between what is 
visible and invisible, inner and outer, interweaving myths and rituals and dreams with everyday life, and then poetically linking also historical time with deep time with the present day. Uh, great description of my work. Uh, I don't know what I can add. It's maybe going on a practical side. But when uh, more I think about my work lately is that I guess what you see in my work, it can be seen anywhere in the world, in any culture. It's not that mm. uh, for some people they have this perspective that this is a, a faraway land, a land that people don't know so much about. And maybe there is this sensation of finding something that is lost for all overall um, human yeah. Mm. Um, but I kind of believe that this can be traced in any point in the world as far as we are alive, as far as artificial intelligence doesn't take over, <laughs> <laughs> as far as there is a memory that can be transmitted, you know, and I mm. think that memory plays a, a crucial role. And I believe that my work is very much related to this uh, kind of excavation of memory and working with the memory. The great thing about memory that it can be very personal, so it gives a liberty to drive where you want to drive. You know, when we retell the story, you know, uh, uh, several people can live an experience and each of them can have their own version of the story. And uh, Mm. I wonder if this is possible for the artificial intelligence, you know, like to have these nuances of human senses, uh, emotion. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that my work is related to memory, memory that not only what I have heard orally, but also memories uh, that I have read. I get a lot of inspiration from books of scholars that worked in the region For me, it's like an excavating memory. Yeah. And just the way you speak about the senses, of course, I want to talk to you about slowness, which is the focus of the platform I lead, Slow Research Lab. And it's a topic that for me encompasses many different things. Of course, it does in part have to do with literally slowing down, decelerating, interfering with or disrupting that that fast pace of contemporary life and being able to open up our sensorial and sensuous capacities and then also relevant to time, not just the time it takes, but time more generally, different tempos and temporalities. Your practice ticks a lot of the boxes, as they say. There are so many, for me, slow qualities in it. But I wonder what slowness means to you and how, if at all, you feel it manifests in your work. I've, I've heard you say that when people look at your work, they slow down and they receive the work through a different time clock. Yes, I think there is that. But uh, uh, when I make my films, it's not the maybe this is like a second thought. No, when you think about uh, how the work is received by the audiences, but when mm. you edit or film, I believe there is um, a kind of being faithful to yeah. what you are filming. Yeah. By the time you dedicate dedicate to what you are filming, there is a, a moment of merging. 
And I think mm-hmm. for me, this is very important. So a moment when you can say, I live the moment together, no? I guess mm-hmm. is that. And for that, you need time while I film very long. Eh? What you mm-hmm. see, it's very short <laughs> comparing to the way I film. It's a very long process and uh, I film a lot of material. I come back with a lot of rushes. And then uh, in within you look for the moments that go to the editing. Mm. And then when you edit also, you need to breathe. So it's about breathing. Yeah. And mm. I guess also slowness. Uh, I wonder how it works. Uh, it gives a sense of uh, stability. Mm. While speed gives a bit of a rush. Uh, maybe speed is about... Maybe it has a good side, you know, maybe it's about developing, I don't know. eh? But uh, I think that in slowness there is certain feeling of uh, stability. also say something about the very slow pacing of the films in terms of the viewer experience well this also doesn't come as an intention you know Uh, but I know it from myself uh, when I watch films it's very important to leave a space for a viewer the slowness and uh, um, a possibility to contemplate creates a space for anyone who enters that world to uh, kind of construct its own space so it slowly happened by itself that uh, the works have this uh, a dreamy effect. And I think it's a, exactly about going and touching your senses where your irrational side starts working. Uh, I think that this is important in my works when I build them. Yeah, There is a moment when the works start kind of having its own agency, you know, its Mm. own voice and its own, uh, it exists, you know. So to achieve that point, I guess it goes through a kind of slowing down. Yeah. And also rhythm is important to you, I would say. Would you agree? I mean, this layering of different visual and sonic sources and textures that happen in uh, some of your films. Yeah, I think that it's a way to make works uh, that can speak in many layers, uh, Mm. that can speak to different people and the sensitivities. Also, for me, it's uh, more interesting to work by layering because that's what uh, gives me kind of an inspiration and a sparkle to, to keep on working on the subject. And it helps to create kind of a mystery, you know, by layering you weave together different spaces worlds and then in between them when you find a question or something that intrigues you um, that's where where the work starts uh, making sense for me so layering for me is extremely important um, layering through mythical time layering through historical time yeah. also reacting to a um, 
contemporary time. So when uh, these three layers come together, for me, it's uh, the most uh, interesting. It cannot be always achieved, but when it happens, it's great. It's when you feel fulfilled. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And actually in the Field Essays book, Q, Meandering in the Worlds of Mourning, Sophie Creer talked about how through this layering, we're sometimes losing our bearings, mm -hmm. which I definitely feel in the work and also for me relates to a field of possibility that we talk about a lot at Slow Research Lab, which is about not knowing, mm -hmm. allowing ourselves to, to enter into a field that is unknown. And losing our bearings has something to do with that. Well, I guess the space for me, it's always this uh, kind of a space which is undefined or that leaves uh, question marks. That's what is interesting. I was never driven to really work with the direct subjects or direct uh, linear narratives. Mm. When I write my new work each time, if my mind goes to a linear thinking, you know, mm. which is more expensive explanative mm. uh, which is closer to the life we see in a physical uh, basic dimension then I really get discouraged and I don't understand why there is a need to make this work mm. when uh, you tune yourself into thinking in another kind of uh, time which is non-linear and also associative then I really mm. get uh, inspired and empowered to keep on working because that's the space that gives the possibilities I think to also think differently from what we are uh, used to yeah and your films do that sonically as well wouldn't mm -hmm. you say in terms of like vocal sounds and poems and chants and noises from nature and musical instruments that's another element of this layering and the rhythm mm-hmm yeah yeah the sound is crucial for me it's way more deep and more limitless than image uh, mm. because you have one of your senses shut down if you take out the image yeah. the sound can really build a story and communicate a message mm. so sound is uh, it's an amazing space i think that it's kind of uh, represents what I look for in moving image, seeing shapes, forms, colors that we can read and associate easily. That's what I look for in, in my movies to kind of go beyond those limits uh, of reading. No, While sound, by not using the codes of image, uh, it's already liberated and can mm. uh, take you to uh more wider or limitless horizons yeah other dimensions even mm. and now that we've talked about sound could you also say something about silence well silence uh uh silence is as powerful as sound i guess it's a interaction between two of them uh, how this uh, rhythm or spaces are constructed uh, vice versa uh, sound and the silence. Silence for me, it also has a very strong gesture of a resistance. And uh, I also yes. believe not everything should be communicated. Uh, I don't agree that everything should be explained. There are spaces that should remain in silence. And that's the only way that they can survive. 
and uh, continue. So silence, it's a kind of a sacred place, sacred space. And it's also, um, for me, it's way stronger resistance than speaking out. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I was thinking also about the dimensions of silence that we could teach to machines, perhaps. And thinking about, as I've discussed with other people on the podcast, like a composer I talked to very early on, like about different kinds of sonic landscapes and different also temporalities of sound. And I find in your work, there are definitely these different readings and understandings and experiences of time. In a talk you had with Rolando Vasquez, the decolonial thinker, he spoke of your films in terms of relational temporalities. And Philippa Ramos, the film scholar and curator, has written of their elastic chronology, exposing or amplifying different temporal frameworks, which I sometimes talk about as extending empathy also backward and forward in time. I feel that in your work, and I wonder if that's true for you, feels true. Yeah, yeah, yeah it does. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> mm. Is there anything else about time that you could share how that operates through your work with a view to thinking about how this might operate in and through the, the technologies that are emerging in our midst? Well, I think that there is something overall related to the time and how we conceive the time, no? I guess the time we are exposed to and we think about time, it's a human uh, invented time perception and a calculation that in fact brought us into a modernization. I guess these are the basic thoughts no, that uh, brought humanity to what we are today. And time calculation and monetization probably are two points that uh, we're developing in parallel. I'm not here to say what the time is in its uh, origin, I don't know. Mm. Uh, I guess there is many ways to approach it, but the way I feel and sense and think, it's definitely not what we are used to know as time. Also, this idea of beginning and the end, uh, which is directly related to time, uh, this is also a question, you know, who says that there is a beginning and the end? Maybe it's not at all, you know, maybe it's just the, the sizes of the circular movement mm. that can be in different angles. It can, I guess, take all types of forms and speed and shapes. I think that the, here very helpful is uh, Oriental classical music. I think a lot about it. We have a tradition of maqam in Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. It's a professional Oriental classical music, which for the uh, Western uh, mind, the closest would be raga in India, you know? So mm. this musical modes are not limited in time. It's really driven by... Uh, the situation given, and within the situation given, you decide how you produce music within a given mode. So it can be circular and just creating a mood. As you say, tuning the speed, let's say, you know, whether it's slower or faster, mm -hmm. or it goes to 
uh, another level of kind of giving a sensation of a possible story. So time is a is a very open uh, space to perceive. In this new work I did also for the Eye Museum, eighteen thousand worlds. Yes, I have been thinking about time and this circular uh, perception of time, which is, it's curious, you know, like the space of um, galleries and museums, they give to artists who work with moving image, this, it changes a lot, you know, like, especially when you come from a traditional conventional cinema and you enter this space where you can use this looping and you loop your film. So in fact, there is no beginning and the end, you know, and there is mm. no request from the audience to stay a certain amount of time to enter the story. So you enter the story any moment you want and you go out from the film any moment you want. If we speak about the uh, technologies and artificial intelligence, I have no idea <laughs> <laughs> because I did not work and I'm so far from it. I think you're closer than you think you are. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know, but I think that it's anyway it's a human mate, you know. Yeah. It's a human mate and maybe for the bigger masses it can end up as a disaster and maybe for some disciplines like art maybe science it will move us beyond, you mm. know. If it is happening it means there is no way to go against it or either we push it to the limit when it fails and we fail together yeah. and then we reinvent ourselves or maybe it will take us uh, to the next moment. The other thing I wanted to say about time was... I mentioned Philippa Ramos wrote a piece about one of your films called The Haunted from 2017. And that's where she talked about this elastic chronology. And she says, this elasticity of time allows the artist to invent a way of dealing with memory in which various events, what has happened, what is taking place, and what will become, coexist in an extended now that is deeply entangled with other temporalities. So... There is this kind of collapsing of space-times, or at least a kind of setting different times and spaces in dialogue in some way, as a means to opening up new, new understandings and new futures. Well, for me, it's important to kind of create these spaces in parallel in one work. Uh, at least I do that even if they don't end up being in the film, but I do it when I, when I do my research and I prepare. For each of the work, I try to go from mythical time to historical time and go through all the possible moments of recent history that helps me to build a space which is more um, complex, I guess. Um, but then when you think about film language, it's about time and space, you know, and it's endless, it's limitless uh, I think that there is so much more to explore, you know, in the mm. sense of space and time in the moving image. Mm. That's how I I, I feel it. Uh, in The Haunted, of course, it's uh, related to the deep time because of <clears throat> the tiger 
mm. nature, the recent history through the archives, the present sensation of me by putting these three, four lines, it questions the future. Mm. Yeah, deep time. Uh, in one of your recent conversations with the curator, Dina Akmadeva from the Tate Modern, you talked about your work as looking for the female through deep time, women um, whose lives and identities and the knowledges they carry and transmit are so uh, centered in so many of your films. And when people see your work, women are almost always center screen, also layering archival footage from other films and film libraries and and imagery. So you really come away with a rich kind of sense of a tapestry of that woman in deep time. And I wonder, of course, when I think about the predominant masculine codings of technology, there's a lot of room for and need for the inclusion of the female, of the feminine, of a wider spectrum of knowledge and knowings and and stories of emancipation, which you also tell through your films. Maybe we could just talk about women, what their role is in the cultural and spiritual heritage and life of Central Asia. And, and also, you said to Dina, a woman from deep time goes in all directions. She is always there. So I'd also love to hear you elaborate about what you mean by that. Well, it's uh, it's interesting because, you know, uh, working with the female stories, it's not like a main intention, you know, it was not like a decision. No, it's just, it comes naturally. I, again, maybe it's related to personal experience, like living with my grandmother and uh, knowing the world through her eyes and through her perception. Mm. Then, of course, woman is, it's a different uh, storyteller rather than a, a man in the history, I think, you know. Uh, it's less rational. Uh, I guess women would not invent the time we are living in today. <laughs> they probably would propose something different, you know. <laughs> but then, of course, I don't think that the, this world should be divided. I think it's actually about mm. completing each other and mm. building uh, it together. But then there's also the very practical aspects of what happened in the region of Central Asia with these different, you know, forces, geopolitical forces moving through and the important role uh, that women had in keeping cultural and spiritual heritage safe and keeping it alive. And in fact, you talk about how they became witches and healers and medicine women. It's a complicated question, you know, like by one hand, women stayed more at home, you know, so they were less exposed to the external changes uh, to which men were more exposed and had to deal with. Uh, so women have kept and transmitted within the families uh, those old knowledges. Um, then there was once I read something very interesting, you know, Abu Ali Ibn Sina, which is known to the world as, as Avicenna. Mm. And the founder of the contemporary medicine. Uh, he came from uh, the region which is today inside of Uzbekistan. And uh, back then, all these scholars, you know, like 
Speaking also about artificial intelligence, now with you, I was thinking about that Muslim Renaissance explorations of uh, chemistry, alchemia, which was the alchemics, in fact, alchemia, mm -hmm. but then it became chemistry, uh, algebra, which is uh, became algebra, yeah. no mathematics. Yeah. Mathematics, yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, astronomy, uh, right? Astronomy, algorithms, uh, which yeah. comes from uh, al-Khorezmi. But all that is based in a very long knowledge of the Zoroastrians in the region that achieved high practices in alchemy and astrology and knowledge of cosmology. So anyway, just going back to the female question, I read that before Avicenna, locally, all the practice related to healing and to medicine was only women. It was not given mm. to men at all, you know. Mm. So it was kept and protected by women, which is, of course, it's very basic. It's a knowledge of the plants. It's a knowledge of, I guess, temperature, you know, within the body. Uh, but then, of course, Avicenna has systemized. He mm -hmm. had uh, written the tractates. So I guess there is something related to the women, which is an experience and knowledge. But we tr pass it down maybe uh, irrationally, you know, like without yeah. bringing to a pure racialization, which is... Again, maybe it's not right because then it is dissolved and we never know who are these women, but they speak mm. like in a collective voice, an mm. anonymous voice, which is, I think, is also fantastic, you know, so it's not like uh, creating a figures in the history, like prophets that we venerate, but we rather venerate a collective presence mm. or a collective human knowledge. So with women... Is that, you know, like this sense of being invisible, intraceable, uh, yeah. but the transmitter. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a perfect segue to talk about the Chiltans or the Chiltan, yeah. another prominent female figure in the history of your region or a group of figures, these 40 warrior women, but sometimes genderless and shape-shifting and with sacred bodies and a fluid presence and sometimes invisible, but also sometimes embodied as animals and plants and stones and lakes. You've talked about how they are healers, they are rescuers, they come to the world when there's a crisis. They're also said to, you know, if the earth is spinning too fast on its axis, they come down and they walk together as a band of 40 in the opposite direction to bring the earth back into balance. And they appear when people can no longer harmonize with nature, with life, with the movement of stars. Yeah. So I'd love to hear you talk about them because we are at that, we are at a state of crisis and we are in exactly the kind of place where, um, as you have shared, the Chiltans would be summoned. Or will come back in some other shapes, no? <laughs> that we cannot yet imagine. I think I told you about the fact that when I met the Chiltans uh, to the Davra Collective, I wanted to, I really looked for some queer artists you know that work with technology you know and uh, unfortunately i couldn't find anyone but i had this sensation that there should be someone not only from the past but also someone speaking from um, who knows maybe future or possible future let's say no mm. 
There's a painting that the artist Lynn Randolph made in dialogue with Donna Haraway's writings. And the painting centers a woman who the artist herself described as playing with the cosmos and roaming across histories and civilizations. I found that really beautiful kind of connection to your work. And Donna Haraway herself said of the image, in this painting, she, the cyborg, embodies the woman, human, organism, communications technology, mathematician, writer, worker, engineer, scientist, spiritual guide, lover of the earth. Mm -hmm. So I, I just wonder how that sits with you also in terms of the possible further evolution of women's identities in Central Asia and even in relation to a film you created in 2020 called Her Five Lives, like even thinking about maybe the sixth life of the woman of Uzbek cinema anyway, if not the woman of Central Asia. The sixth chapter, could it be a cyborg chapter? <laughs> well, that would be interesting. But this painting, in fact, it, why why do you think she's not Central Asian? She could be Central Asian. Well, because Donna Haraway explains that she was based on a Chinese woman who had come to the U.S. Um, uh, but I agree she could be from many places. And, um, and I love thinking about her also as that woman in deep time that we talked about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The one who goes in all directions and will always be there. Yeah. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. The way that you show your new piece, 18,000 Worlds, in the Eiffel Museum is in uh, a room to the side where visitors are invited to lie down on these traditional um, corpacha blankets or pads to take the film in. And it felt to me like you were kind of inviting them to enter this in-between state of consciousness, something that's closer to dreams. I certainly had that experience. Was that your intention? to invite people into kind of a liminal space for well, pondering the worlds or it just happened <laughs> really it just happened because they said well this is a room for the new work and mm -hmm. we wanted to bring these corpachas from documenta yeah and somehow it just came together you know i honestly i didn't plot it but then um when we put the corpachas and also I lie down and watched, I was like, well, this is nice because it has a, something like a session. I don't know whether session to sleep uh, or to like hypnotic session or yeah. uh, a radiation session. I don't know what kind mm. of session, but there is, mm. a, yeah. for me, it was a sense of a session. While the other works, they narrate, they build a, a narration. But this room with 18,000 worlds, I think that it had a different uh, meaning for mm. me. Mm -hmm. And definitely a different kind of temporality again. Yeah. It's about how there are 18,000 
worlds that make up the universe, and we are living in just one of them. It's about that, uh, but it's also about the worlds that are disappearing. And it's also a question of whether we let this world disappear. So 18,000 worlds, of course, it brings as an idea of existing of these worlds in parallel, but it also questions whether we let them go or Mm. we try to hold them. I found it deeply comforting. (laughs) These words that are spoken during the film, do you have that at hand by any chance? Can you maybe read a a fragment uh, of the English version Mm -hmm. about the 18,000 worlds? Those who tried to erase didn't know that we were looking through 18,000 eyes. Those who wanted to silence us didn't know we were whispering through 18,000 lips. Those who wants to replace it, let them know that we will reflect it in 18,000 moons. Those who is going to lose it, they should know that we will point it in 18,000 stars. Those who want to forget, let them know that we will bring it 18,000 steps closer, as there will be always 18,000 hands to keep it. Mm. Yeah. So that just, it raises the question for me, what glimpses that AIs might be able to give us of those 18,000 worlds? Can they help us to generate and animate some of those whispers and moons and stars and steps and hands. You know, when I was editing this film, Mm. I was really questioning that for me, it actually lacks a bit of some worlds that are unknown and that are generated by artificial intelligence. (laughs) I didn't have uh, time to go that direction. And it's not only time, eh? You need to be ready to create. Mm. But I thought quite a lot when I was making this film because this is, I really would like to be part of the 18,000 worlds because it's already a world Mm -hmm. that is somewhere in the parallel. Yeah. But not only that the AIs are one of the worlds, but that the AIs can enliven the worlds that they can help to bring forward Uh, and to make, somehow to make tangible what we don't know yet, or what we don't know to know yet. I'd love to hear you talk about dreams. You've said sleeping and dreaming are gateways to access the knowledge that is unwritten. And there are spaces in which knowledge that's lost or forgotten can stay alive. The dreams actually has an incredible capacity of time and space. Mm. It's beyond our comprehension. And I believe there is a lot to explore in the dreams with time and space. It's the connecting to the lost uh, or we think uh, it's finished, lost, dead, but it's still alive and can be retraced mm. through the help of the dreams. Yeah. 
I guess uh, this takes us to the beginning of the conversation, which is related to a memory, no? A mm. uh, memory, mm. uh, because I think that we think that memory is something that we remember, but maybe memory is something that our not only body remembers, but beyond our body, you know, something that comes through um, its uh, intergenerational transmission mm. memory. Mm. Like with the traumatic experiences, you know, they say that the traumatic experiences, they go beyond uh, one life and are transmitted yes. to the yes. descendants. Yes. And I guess uh, the dreams work like that. They carry the hidden, something that we sometimes forget, not intentionally, just because we don't use it or we don't find it useful and somehow brain functions that it takes it out, but then it's never taken out. So dreams is it's um they probably they carry everything, like mm. from the darkest to the most light, like filled with light. So it depends on what you are looking for. Mm. Especially in the process of making a film in 2016 called The Stains of Oxus. You traveled along the Amudarya River and collected dreams from people living along it. And from this, you began to construct a kind of vocabulary of, of dreams, or at least of, of images that then appear in your works. Could you explain a bit, maybe the process and what you found out? The moment it kind of became clear, I want to make uh, this film of following Amudaria was when I saw this ink uh, stain of uh, Rochecher, uh, a psychoanalyst. Yeah, that's why it's called Stains of Oxus, the film. Uh, it's a stain, so how they would uh, use it for the psychoanalytical studies. But then I was like, well, we have this incredible tradition of sharing dreams with the water, uh, how many stains there are hidden. Mm, or gone into the Amudaria River uh, or the Oxus. That's the Greek title of the Amudaria. Mm -hmm. So it was just going from its uh, origin, from the glaciers in the pre-Himalayas until the end or the death of the river in the Aral Sea and to follow the flow by encountering people that live on the riverbanks and that have once shared their dreams with water. So very simple idea, but for me, I was fascinated actually by walking together with the water from its source, like mm -hmm. you see it as a newborn and then you uh, uh, see it uh, mm -hmm. as a very old entity when it gets closer to uh, horizon, it becomes very tired. You sense, you know, slowness and mm. there is a sense of time in it. And then it doesn't arrive to the Aral Sea. You just see the sands. Mm. So collecting the dreams, it depends the time you spend. You know, of course, you can ask one or two dreams and then you are limited to that. But then it, one dream takes you to so many other spaces which you can discover and it's like with a tiger, you know, that suddenly the tiger appeared. Then there was another image that appeared, an understanding, which I was quite impressed as well, related to the bones. And I guess it's related, uh, you know, in shamanism, there is this idea of um, body initiation of life that 
you are twice born and twice die within the mm-hmm. life. So, and it's visualized by a body that is, I don't know how you say it in uh, English, uh, in Russian, it's расчленение, you know, when all the pieces of your bones become separated and then it gets reconstructed again. I see. So it is related to initiation, you know. I read it in the books, like of Merce Eliade, you know, on shamanism. Yeah. But uh, here you witness it, how people share it through their dreams, but they don't understand, you know, it's irrational. It goes, goes, goes. It's a space that allows you to work with subconscious, to work with something that that goes beyond one life experience and uh, goes to the space of um, invisible. Hmm. You've mentioned the tiger, and that's one of the kind of totem figures that appears repeatedly in people's dreams. The Turan tiger in particular is one that you focus on in a film you made called uh, The Haunted um, from 2017, one year after you were collecting dreams along the river. And it appears in dreams as a guide, as a protector, as a messenger from ancestors, a figure transmitting knowledge, and sometimes a healer or sometimes an instigator to healing. And in your film, The Haunted, it's like the tiger which became extinct, they think, right in the mid-20th century, left this kind of ecological void. And yet at the same time, you say that although there is a void, its appearance in dreams keeps it alive in the post-terrestrial. When I think about all the people to whom I spoke about the dreams, either they are elder generation or they are the ones that are, as I said, you on this verge of the spaces in between, you know, like whether musicians, creative people, or healers, or with some spiritual uh, practices. Mm. Uh, And there is already preselection of the ones to whom to speak to, and there is a certain sensitivity. Um, And yet, even as there was some kind of uh, selection or selectivity in terms of the dreams people shared with you, I feel like that tiger you feel the agency of that tiger wanting to be spoken about somehow. I don't know if you agree with that, but you've talked about it not as this kind of passive presence that was observed in dreams, but as a kind of a force, you know, as a kind of antagonist that required people to pay attention in their dreams and to also, as you said, what was it, a young shaman that was taught how to heal in dreams by the tiger. And you talked about a woman who was given the urge to create carpets in a disappearing technique to exorcise the presence of the tiger from her dreams. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk about the tiger because I wonder whether in relation to artificial intelligences, could they help to revive those totem presences or those kind of more than human agencies, could they actually become embodied in the machine? So speaking about technology, let's say, artificial intelligence that enters the spiritual space, because when we speak about totems and we speak about human experience, it depends if we want to allow it to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. No, at the end, 
it's do we want it? Mm. Me personally, probably I wouldn't like that yet. Who knows? Maybe, <laughs> maybe soon I will change my mind. Mm. You know? <laughs> but uh, I think that there is a danger to really mess up because, as I said earlier, the dreams and subconscious has. As dark, so light spaces, yeah. as evil, so good spaces, you know, it's as our life is, it's just our invisible part, you know, let's call it spiritual space, no, because anyway, when we speak about totems and about healing or ancient beliefs, it it's all in the spiritual space, I don't know, I think that it's very, that's what makes human. You know, that probably is a difference of a human from mm-hmm. um, a human-created entity or agency. But does that mean that it would be better to allow some of these images and these rituals and things to die? No, I think it's it's to us to work on it. Yeah. Why we should pass it down to artificial intelligence if we have a capacity to go and do it, you know? What we can do is that we can probably give information that we accumulate, the knowledge that we accumulate to artificial intelligence. Yeah. For what? Maybe to create a space. Then, yes, it's an interesting art project and probably I would actually be curious about that. But the knowledge accumulation, it's our work and we should work on it. writer Amitav Ghosh uh, talks about our understanding of human history and even of ourselves would be completely different if all the stories had been recorded, if the more than human voices could be understood, heard and understood and recorded. And then this, the spectrum of knowings that we would have and our, the ways we would understand our, our enmeshment in this thing called life and the earth and the cosmos would be potentially completely different. And that's that's the only reason that I'm questioning whether it makes sense to, to ask these machines to help us keep them alive. I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but I think that what they can keep is they can keep an information. Yeah. But are they capable to keep the knowledge? Because knowledge is related to experience, you know, to experience we go through and okay let's speak about non-human and knowledge that animal world or mineral world has and i believe they have a knowledge but the artificial intelligence i guess can keep information for us it can also begin to weave together information in unexpected ways i think that can lead to new knowledge yeah we were talking about the question you have about whether or not to share knowledge and when you have the right to share certain knowledge to to cultures outside your own. I think that there is a limit to that. Eh? There is mm-hmm. a line. There yeah. is a line that cannot be for me, at least. And it's a line I, I draw myself. Mm. Uh, and that's just intuitive or or how yeah. do you... Yeah. Yes, it's intuitive. There is a space yeah. that is not given to... Because, you know, you can also read it as an exploitation. Yes. You, and even if it is a part of my culture and my, let's mm-hmm. say, experience and knowledge, uh, there is a limit 
it's about uh, a respect and uh, yes. sacredness. And there is a question of exploitation because in certain point, I really ask myself, you know, am I exploiting it, you know, to to make my works visible? Um, so there is this line. And uh, I absolutely believe that there is a space that should be kept unseen. Hmm. I had to think of what Edouard Glissant said, what his position was on the imposition of transparency as a tool of the oppressor, that everything has to be known, and it has to be known within a certain limited Western framework of knowing. Whereas, uh, if you're familiar, Glissant himself insisted on the right to opacity. It was one of his laws of relation. And as Glissant said in his book, The Poetics of Relation, opacities can coexist and converge, weaving fabrics. To understand these, truly one must focus on the texture of the weave and not on the nature of its components. So when I thought of that, it, it strikes me that the texture of the weave is perhaps one of the most powerful things that we experience through your work and that's transmitted through your work. It goes back to what you were saying about editing and layering, not just weaving together a story, but offering us a texture that can uh, also be a space of freedom. Well, I guess it's uh, it's the spiritual space, no? That we don't always remember because we're taken by other processes. But uh, uh, as far as there is a spiritual space, we will leave, you know? As soon as it disappears, then mm. it's the end. Yeah. And it can be any type, any shape, any sense any form and the spirituality is an anchor point of humanity. Hmm. So that's Ismailova. It's been really a pleasure to speak with you and I hope it won't be the last time. Thank you so much, Caroline. This has been AI Murmurings, a project of Slow Research Lab. The music you've been hearing is from The Resonance Canons, composed and performed by Christopher Tigner from his album A Light Below, released in 2019 on Western Vinyl. To learn more, listen, and purchase Christopher Tigner's music, please go to wiresundertension.com. To receive updates on this podcast, subscribe on your favorite podcasting app, or follow our Instagram. It's AI underscore murmurings. I'd like to thank our founding partners at the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and Sia Furler Institute at the University of Adelaide, audio engineer Fabian Reichler, and of course, the Resonance Foundation for their generous financial support. I'm Carolyn Strauss, Director of Slow Research Lab. <laughs>